Hello and welcome everybody. Thank you for being here this morning for MIAS 2023 annual online meeting. Of course, this morning for those of us in this part of the world, in Europe and around it, uh, I know for some of you it is very late in the middle of the night, extremely early morning. So thank you all for making the effort and being here today. Our meeting today is going to be in two parts, separated by a short break. In the first part, we have Bharatwaj Ayer, who will present a talk that explores the relevance of Ibn Arabi's teaching in addressing modern forms of exclusivism. Then we'll have a short break of about 10-15 minutes, and that will be followed by an interactive session with our trustees, who will address this year's and upcoming developments within the society. So, with the first part, I'm going to introduce Bharatwaj. Bharatwaj Ayer is a PhD student at the Indian Institute of Technology in Bombay, focusing on Heidegger and the phenomenological tradition. He is on the education team of MIAS, where he has served for over two years. Bharatwaj recently published The Transeminence of the Real, Ontological Pluralism in the School of Ibn Arabi, edited by Pablo Benito. A forthcoming article he is working on is titled You are a Puzzle Lock, a Phenomenological Analysis of Perplexity in Philosophy East and West, examines the Urdu poem Tomek Gorach Dandahu from a Heideggerian perspective. Baratwaj's academic and activist interests are political pluralism and rising extremism. So, Bharatwaj, I really look forward to listening and hearing to hearing your talk. So, please go ahead. Thank you. Thank you very much for that, uh, for the introduction. Uh, thank you, Omar. Thank you, Chris, for um, the planning. And uh, thank you to the society for this, uh, for this wonderful opportunity. I'm really humbled and I'm, uh, and I'm really, um, Filled with gratitude and I'm looking forward to uh, the evening. So, um, I have a presentation. My presentation attempts to look at the teachings of Ibn Arabi through the lens of phenomenology. I'm especially interested in the notions of pluralism and polysemy entailed in the Akbarian tradition. In my paper for the journal religions, uh, that Omar mentioned, uh, I studied the interpenetration of transcendence and immanence in Ibn Arabi and the polysemic hermeneutics it gives, it gives rise to. In today's presentation, a lot of these discussions will be continued. My presentation is divided into three uh, interrelated parts. The first part is uh, the barza, and the second one is uh, delimitation, and finally, transimmanence. What we will pay attention to specifically is the philosophical and even logical structures underlying these concepts. The political philosopher Simon Critchley, who teaches at the New School, claims in his book, The Faith of the Faithless, that today's political reality can be defined as one of identitarian, religiously motivated violence. One can subtly turn this around and say that the political reality of the world today is one of violent identification that the construction of identity itself involves violence. Examples of this can be seen in the growing religious nationalisms all over the world, including India. 
These constructions of national identity, cleansed of internal fissures, cleansed of the play of ambiguity in betweenness and polysemy, is itself violence. Such unambiguous identity is related closely to the unswerving attachment to an exclusivist truth. Such conceptions of truth itself becoming a totem for forming this identity. However, as um, a Heidegger scholar, Ian Thompson notes, all such group identification and all such purveying of exclusivist truth contain within them the hard kernel of insecurity because identities are simply more complex and cannot be sustained or grasped in this monolithic fashion. It is in this context and the contemporary situation of violent identification that we ask what the Islamic mystical tradition in general and the school of Ibn Arabi in particular can teach us about the elusive meaning of identity and the ambiguities that surround it. Before we go further, I wish to note here what Shahab Ahmad wonderfully states about what he calls the Sufi philosophical amalgam and their sense of identity as providing explorative authority which an explorative authority is the business of setting out into the unknown, the uncertain, the unexperienced, the unsettling, the new. Instead of the rocky solidity of rock-solid identities, the Sufis bring the softness of metaphor, majaz. Ahmed quotes the maxim, al-majaz, al-majaz, kantarat al-haqiqa. Metaphor is the, is the bridge to the truth. And yet this hakika, <clears throat> this reality or real truth in, in Ahmed's fascinating term, does not lend itself to be totalized and finally captured by some system or doctrine of philosophical position or by some final assembly of metaphors. The real truth for the Sufis is a sheer abundance of truth. And so this walking on the bridge of metaphors is never ending. Because this abundant truth cannot be finalized and totalized, the majas itself assumes central importance, becoming itself a form of reality. And so do bridges. And the notion of the bridge is what we most need today. The bridge is not a mere ladder which one can throw off after safely and securely landing on the top of the building. Being itself, reality itself here assumes the nature of a bridge and passage. Emma defines this situation wonderfully as the ambiguity and mutual embeddedness of the two sides of reality. That is, the mutually constitutive experiential ambiguity of the alam al-majaz and the alam al-haqiqa. He further goes on to describe the metaphor as bridge, as a bridge on which one is forever crossing back and forth in the act of meaning making. So what do we have here? We have polysemous meaning-making and interpretative non-finality. With the notion of ambiguity and bridges, we are in a perfect position to discuss Ibn Arabi's notion of the barzakh in relation to the conceptual problem of identity. The term barzakh is used in the Quran with two significant meanings, one as the partition between the two seas and the other as the partition between this world and the next. Ibn Arabi reads this Quranic notion of the barzakh in all its philosophical and phenomenological depth. In the Futuhat, Ibn Arabi sees the barzakh, the threshold or the in-between, not just as a partition or separator, but also as a conjoiner and the very source of the two sides of which it is the between. This is a fascinating perspective. It means that the two sides of the equation are not preformed or pre-given objects between whom there is the barzakh. 
Rather, it is the barzakh itself that gives each of the sides their very identity. So when we arrive at the scene, there is always already our betweenness. And indeed, for Ibn Arabi, the whole of existence is betweenness. Already we can see how the bridge, Al-Kantara, is at once the mutually constitutive space for Al-Majaz and Al-Haqiqah. Let us allow Ibn Arabi to explain this to us through the Futuhat, and our focus will be the 63rd chapter dedicated to the Barzakh. What is the Barzakh? Ibn Arabi says, a Barzakh is something that separates two other things while never going to one side, as for example, the line that separates shadow from sunlight. He goes on then to explain the nature of this in-between as outside sense perception. For, he argues, if it is perceived by the senses, it is of the two things and not the barzakh. Uh, however, the barzakh is not only intelligible, it separates an intelligible from a non-intelligible. And so is, in other words, the foundation of intelligibility. Yet it is not intelligible like a sensible thing. Rather, the barzakh belongs to the realm of imagination. How can we describe imagination? Ibn Arabi says, the reality of imagination is continual change in every state and manifestation in every form. This implies that the in-between, which is of the nature of constant flux, cannot be rationally or sensibly pinned down. Just as, to take the example of Ibn Arabi, the dividing line between light and darkness can't be pinned down. This is what makes Bruce Lawrence say in his essay, Writing in the Eye of the Storm, that what is crucial in understanding in Ibn Arabi is the irreducibility of the barzakh itself. But what is even more radical in Ibn Arabi's irreducible in-between is that this barzakh is not a later addition after the fact of two things coming together. Rather, as Ibn Arabi puts it, and one must pay attention to this slowly and closely, any two adjacent things are in need of a barzakh, which is neither the one nor the other, but possesses the power of both. So neither nor and both. The very being of things then is located in their interrelations. And without these interrelations, the identity of things will not be possible. Things are not finally settled in themselves, but need to be constantly traversed in interpretation and meaning making. So far, we are thinking of Barzakh in a largely logical and epistemological framework. It is important to note that to Ibn Arabi, the Barzakh has ontological significance as well. We saw about that things have a need for the Barzakh between them. This is true for the whole of existence for the Sheikh. The Barzakh is like the dividing line between existence and non-existence. It is neither existent nor non-existent, he says. This he terms as the supreme Barzakh which stands for the entirety of reality and all the possible forms of existence. And these possibilities are ever renewed, ever regenerated and in constant flux. Such a metaphysic implies that the world and the word are ever open for polysemic interpretation, as Federico Salvaggio argues in a recent article. Identity and meaning making then cannot be pre-given and fixed, but must be constantly in the making. The world that this opens up is not one of solipsistic self-isolation, for no one thing can it be itself without the other. It is apt that such an ontology rests on the notion of imagination, which, as we saw, is ever-changing and renewing. However, this does not mean that all identity is dissolved. 
when A and B are A and B because of their betweenness, this does not dissolve the A-ishness of A or the B-ishness of B. It rather makes us sensitive to the ambiguity and flux involved in all identity formation, including the nexus of connections that makes us who we are. So far as religious identification is concerned, it reminds us to maintain our identities while being sensitive to the other possible and variegated forms of religious worlds that others attach themselves to. For these other worlds play a constitutive role in our own religious identification. Two, delimitation. Before entering the notion of delimitation, it will be useful to begin with the place of delimitation in modern philosophy. I hold that the basic phenomenological substructure here has important similarities with Ibn Arabi's approach. This, al this allows us to place Ibn Arabi's approach in the present context. In the phenomenological tradition, what is central is delimitation, concealment, inadequacy, veiling as opposed to unveiling, and finitude. In his 1913 work, Ideas One, um, while describing the act of perception, Edmund Husserl, the father of phenomenology, explains the notion of adumbration in these words. A spatial being can appear only in a certain orientation, which necessarily pre-delineates a system of possible new orientations, each of which in turn corresponds to a certain mode of appearance, which we can say which we can express, say, as givenness from such and such a side. He goes on to say, moreover, and this is also an essential necessity, the perception of a physical thing involves a certain inadequacy. Of necessity, a physical thing can be given only one-sidedly. And that signifies not just incompletely or imperfectly, but precisely what presentation by adumbration prescribes. To put all this uh, in a very simple form, what Husserl is saying is, one-sidedness is not a lack, but rather the essential requirement for perception and meaning-making. So the chair comes to us in facets or in faces, going back to the French root for the term facets. So taking the example of the chair as a spatial object, for the perception and intelligibility of the chair, the whole of the chair with all its sides cannot present itself all at once. For the front side of the chair to be manifest, the back of the chair must be non-manifest. The whole unity of the chair can be captured only by adumbration of various profiles of the chair and through a spatial and embodied interaction with it, for example, going around the chair. And yet, as we move to the back of the chair, the front must now be absent from perception. This absence is not a negative thing. It is not failure, but is the essential ingredient in all perception and intelligibility. Husserl's student, Martin Heidegger, takes some of these insights over into his whole thinking about Sein Selbst, being itself. For the later Heidegger, being shows itself historically. Being shows itself through core names or terms like idea in Plato, energia in Aristotle, the creator god in Aquinas, the will to power in Nietzsche, and so on. Through these master names or dominant concepts, being shows itself as a network or system of meaning. Once the dominant concept of being has been stabilized, then it can be forgotten, and Dasein or the human being can move about its business. Much like once we know the working of a door handle, we can forget about it and move on to the business of opening doors and getting into rooms. Thus, Heidegger describes metaphysics as 
Seinsvergessenheit, a forgetting of the total abundance and excess of being in favor of one of these dominant concepts or names. However, forgessenheit or forgetting is not a hindrance or negative concept, but is rather, like Husserl's one-sidedness, the means for being to show itself in a particular delimited structure of showing. And yet, as we can see, this very showing is simultaneously a refusing to show. For beings showing to Plato as idea or form is simultaneously being's refusal to show itself as will to power. For Heidegger, the history of being is its showing itself in one epoch, which is at the same time a refusal of how it shows itself to another epoch. The term epoch itself comes from the Greek epoche, which means bracketing or putting into parenthesis other modes of showing. Why is this parenthesis necessary? Without these particular limited theses of being, as Heidegger calls it, going back to the Greek term thesis, which means to put something up, without these particular theses of being, the full abundance of being will lead to an overkill, leading to no intelligibility or meaning at all. I argue that this fundamental phenomenological understanding of the abundance of being is understood by the Sufi mystics of the school of Ibn Arabi. They not only understand this abundance and they anticipate the dialectical relationship between veiling and unveiling, concealing and unconcealing. When the real shows itself in different doctrinal positions or in different prophetic dispensations, it is simultaneously a veiling of how the real shows itself in other doctrinal configurations and prophetic traditions. The real, which overwhelms any possibility of grasping, shows itself through limited forms. In that sense, every belief regarding the real is a certain construction, a certain knot that is tied. The only way out of this, the only way out of idolatry, will be precisely this recognition of the limitation of every comprehension of him. Tawheed is the recognition of how every conceptualization of him is limited. That recognition is the way out of idolatry. Just as in the famous hadith of uh, Abu Bakr as-Siddiq, the only comprehension of the real is the recognition of the non-comprehensibility of the real. Or as the Pakistani Sufi poet Naz Khayalvi puts it, Haat ao to but, haat na ao to khuda ho. If you are grasped, you're an idol. Only if you're not grasped, do you remain God. Ibn Arabi says in discussing doctrinal differences, that to hold to a particular doctrine or belief is to attempt to grip the real. Yet he says, his being gripped is his self-disclosure in the form of the belief of everyone who has a belief concerning him. The real becomes, as it were, constricted and contracted by the beliefs. The most fascinating thing in this, however, is what he says next. Were he not like this, he would not be God. Yet he is God of the cosmos. There is no doubt. With this, we are back to the concept that we began with, barzakh. The knottings of the heart or the beliefs regarding the real both capture and fail to capture God at the same time. In fact, just like the whole of creation, the knots are both veils and windows to the real. He shows this, Ibn Arbi shows this by saying, since reason maintains that God cannot be restricted, and then says paradoxically, while act, the actual situation demands the existence of restriction, he describes himself as clement, as merciful, 
of the different delimitations and restrictions we have uh, in our conceptualization of him. The discussion on delimitation so far takes us to the final section on transimmanence. Before that, we must note here what this discussion implies for the question of pluralism. I wish to bring up Darashiko, the heir, the, the heir apparent to Shah Jahan's throne, the Mughal emperor. Darashiko was the first translator of the Upanishads, who in his Majmal Bahrain wrote about Vedanta and Sufism as two truth-knowing groups. One of his most pointed expressions of this uncapturable and thus plural understanding of the real is the statement that he quotes from Laldas, the Hindu uh, saint of which he was a very good friend, to the effect that truth is not the monopoly of any one religion. This overcoming of monopoly and monosemy in favor of a polysemy of doctrinal possibilities is what Ibn Arabi's understanding of the real teaches Tarashiko. The understanding that all knotting of the all knottings of the heart both capture and fail to capture the real allows for the sensitivity to the non-finality of any particular knot and the possibility of other knottings and other grippings. Third, transimmanence. The present slide. Finally, in conclusion, we look at the notion of transcendence and immanence and their interpenetration, which I term transimmanence. This notion follows directly from the discussion of delimitation we just saw. Ibn Arabi says, God possesses non-delimited being, but no delimitation prevents him from delimitation. On the contrary, he possesses all delimitations. Hence, he is non-delimited delimitation. This means that the transcendence of God is intimately tied to his imminence. In the Fusus, in the chapter on Noah, Ibn Arabi says, and in fact, Ibn Arabi sings, this is a, a, a poem, and he says that if you hold transcendence, you restrict him. And if you hold imminence, you limit him. But if you hold the two doctrines, you're right, and you will be a leader and a master in knowledge. Beware of likening him if you hold duality and of making him transcendent if you unify him. You are not he, but you are he, and you see him in the essence of things, both boundless and restricted. What Ibn Arabi is suggesting here is that the real transcends even transcendence. The real is in excess of all the doctrinal or intellectual conceptions, and yet this excess does not locate him outside in some metaphysical sky. Ibn Arabi argues that such location would be a form of hidden imminence. And the real transcends even that. Thus, a genuine transcendence and also a genuine imminence requires that this abundance of the real is itself imminent, which means that the imminent structures are themselves pregnant with excess. This is what makes Ibn Arabi logically argue for the ever-moving, flux-like nature of the cosmos. It is also what allows for the ontological pluralism of this system. In other words, if the transcendence of the real is relocated imminently in the imminence, that means the imminent uh, structures of meaning themselves become infinitely changing and moving in flux-like. As the inimitable Shahab Ahmed puts it in commenting on this chapter of the Fusus, this makes it a very subtle operation 
to try to extricate God from all existing things and has also the effect of rendering all things true in the degree that they are manifestations of God. When the abundance of the real, when its sheer transcendence through a dialectical bending of itself is located in imminence itself, we have a conception of the world that is characterized by the conceptual and practical exploration, production, accommodation, appreciation, and preservation of difference and contradiction, to quote Ahmed again. Such an understanding of imminence in recent philosophy, especially spearheaded by Jean-Luc Nancy, is called open imminence. Nancy scholar B.C. Hutchins sees such a world as characterized by incessant strangeness and by the multiple reticulations of meaning. The Sheikh Al-Akbar would agree. How, next slide. How does such a conception of reality help us rethink the question of violence and exclusivism? Nas Khyalvi says this about the real in true Akbarian transimminence. You are in the church, you are in the mosque. You are in the throne, you are on the earth. Whatever the extent of one's vision, there you are for him. He goes on to then ask, when all are lovers of your name, then why are there quarrels about Rahim and Ram? In fact, as we have seen, in order to preserve the abundance of the real, one has to allow for the possibility of its flooding over into other loci of religious manifestation. For no locus can finally and totally capture and pin the real down. To speak in Husserlian terms, the real adumbrates through multiple knots and profiles. And to speak in Heideggerian terms, the real shows itself parenthetically. I shall end with an anecdote about Darashiko's execution. During his trial, he is believed to have been asked by the court to draw firm doctrinal exclusive boundaries between the religions. To this, to this, he is believed to have responded, how can you draw a line in water? Does he mean that no identity should be affirmed? No fixed positions assumed? Not at all. We should remember that even lines drawn on water are lines and are affirmations of form and identity. And yet at the same time, they are indicative of an identity that is ever subject to imminent erasure, revision and renewal, ever moving and ever exploring. Knots are knots and they grip the real. And that is no small thing. And yet what we are being alerted to is the recognition that knots imply constant unknotting and re-knotting. I come back to the political situation of the world that we sketched at the beginning and what the great Shaif can teach us. I think that in an age of violent identification, the Sufis of his school teach us the virtue of bewilderment, water-drawn demarcations, and the virtue of holding our hearts in living flux, ready for any form. Imbibing these teachings and recognizing the place of the other in the formation of one's self-identity is the difficult yet unavoidable political and cultural challenge today. Thank you.